Good morning. Happy Valentine's Day Eve, I guess is what it is. And in God's providence, he's brought us here a day before Valentine's Day, a day of love to the final chapter in Ruth. We're going to be finishing today and tomorrow. I mean, next next week we're going to finish fully, but we're going to be going up to chapter, I mean, verse 12 today. This is going to be the end of our fairy tale romance. However, if you've been with us, you know that this story of Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, at times it's been more Brothers Grimm than Disney. And that's because the Bible is filled with actually true, real life people and events. This is one of the many reasons the Bible stands out if you compare it to other holy books. It does not sugarcoat sin. It does not sugarcoat how sinful people are. And we're taught from the very beginning in Genesis that man is sinful. And throughout Scripture, the rest of the Bible, we see the effects of the fall through people's actions, their words, the consequences of their sin as well. In fact, the biblical heroes are usually messy. They're sometimes scandalous. And some of them are actual scallywags. In other words, they're just like us. They're fallen human beings who desperately need redemption And that can only come, the Bible tells us, through a Redeemer. God has to send us a Redeemer. This is why I sort of like the earlier versions of the Grimm fairy tale stories. If you know the Grimm brothers, they had the early versions of the stories. And and they paint a more realistic, albeit macabre, picture at times of what real life really is like. So if you take, you know, the beautiful story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, And we go to the original story. We have the queen being Snow White's mother, not her stepmother. And she orders the huntsman to kill Snow White and bring home the child's lungs and liver so she can eat them. And the story ends with the queen dancing at Snow White's wedding. That should be happy. Unfortunately, she's wearing red hot iron shoes that kill her. And I can only imagine why Disney changed that from the the VHS. In the original Pinocchio, that sweet little wooden scamp, he takes a hammer and he smashes Jiminy Cricket. Rapunzel, the prince, falls from the towers, blinded by a bramble bush. And Little Mermaid, Ariel, sadly dies at the end. (laughs) And so forth and so on. So the Bible's not quite Disney, and yet it's also not quite Brothers Grimm. It is true. It's from Genesis to Revelation, a God-ordained story about redemption restoration, resurrection. And this comes for lost, wretched, ruined sinners. It's a love story. And God's word resonates with us precisely because as God's people, as spirit-empowered believers, these stories are our stories. We, our lives mirror these stories, both the messy bits, the happy parts. As Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. God's people have always been the same way. For those of us with children, we shouldn't be afraid then to wrestle with the grim stories, the grim sections of the Bible, lest we turn God's word into a domesticated, glossy Disney adventure. We don't want to make God's truth void. I've been a full-time youth worker now for 10 plus years, and I can tell you, kids can always handle more than we think they can handle. And the world does not hold back. God's word is truth. G.K. Chesterton has a fantastic quote. He strikes at this when he talks about fairy tales. He says, fairy tales then are not responsible for producing in children fear 
or any of the shapes of fear, fairy tales do not give the child the idea of evil or the ugly. That is in the child already because it is in the world already. Fairy tales do not give the child his first idea of bogey. What fairy tales give the child is his first clear idea of the possible defeat of bogey. The baby has known the dragon intimately ever since he had an imagination. What the fairy tale provides for him is a St. George to kill the dragon. Well, the end of Ruth is going to be, it's going to provide us a St. George in the form of Boaz. But we're going to look past Boaz to our Redeemer, our true kinsman Redeemer in the form of Christ. And the end of the book of Ruth is also going to help us answer some of the questions that we face at the very beginning in chapter 1. These are questions that we have to ask in our daily lives. These are questions we've asked ourselves throughout our walk with the Lord. Does God care about me and my pain? Does God really love me? Is God going to send me a deliverer? Let's read the text together and let's find out. Ruth 4 verses 1 through 12. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of these sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. The name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. See, the life of the believer is one of setbacks and breakthroughs. It's one of tragedies and triumphs. It's a straight line at times, and then it's a rocky, winding mountain path at others. And we started this story back in chapter 1 with exactly that with tragedy and sorrow, with setback after setback after setback for Naomi. Her family's forced to leave their homeland of Judah due to famine. Awful. Her two sons marry outside the faith. They marry Moabite women who both for 10 years were not told why, one reason or another. 
They cannot have children. Naomi's husband dies. The two sons die. Ruth, Orpah, Naomi, widows. And the chapter ends with Naomi bitter and upset with God. She says, I'm changing my name to bitter. I'm done being Naomi. Chapter 2 now, however, introduces us to a godly man. We're introduced to Boaz. And he might possibly be the one to turn things around. He's going to enter into their tragedy. But even here, we're left with only a glimmer of hope of things to come. Is anything actually going to come of this? Is she just going to glean and and Boaz is just being simply kind and, and he's just a nice guy. So he's going out of his way to be nice to her. And Is there romance here? Those of us who enjoy a good Hallmark movie, I know Ron does. We're seeing telltale signs. We're seeing, some, we're seeing some classic signs. This could be a romance. In chapter 3, there's a devious plot, sort of devious, between Naomi and Ruth that takes place where Boaz isn't really moving fast enough. You know, men, we don't always get the hint. And so Naomi says, I want you to speed things along. I want you to wash up, put on some perfume. I'm going to have you go down to where Boaz is sleeping tonight. And we're reading this and we're thinking, wait a second, we've seen this. We've seen this movie. Don't do anything rash. Do this the right way, Ruth. Is Boaz going to prove himself less than honorable? See, this is the part of the Hallmark movie where we're yelling at the screen. Instead, we see a reversal. It's a reverse proposal. And Boaz is being just as honorable as we knew him to be. Ruth says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And what she means by that is I want you to spread your wings over me, spread your protection over me as my husband. It's a reverse proposal. And all of us reading, we rejoice. But because there's always a but, Boaz drops a bomb on us in, 12, in, in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet, but... There is a Redeemer nearer than I. There better not be. No, Boaz, there better not be. You're being too honorable here, Boaz. Forget the rules. Kiss the girl. But Boaz is obedient to God's word. He's been obedient since chapter 1. And his own desires are second to God's commands. There's somebody, the law says it has to go this way. There's somebody nearer than I. Another step back for Ruth, it seems. And yet, even here at the end of chapter 3, I don't know if you saw this or noticed this or not, he piles barley seed into her lap, into her lap. She's holding and he gives her a gift of barley seed. And his foreshadowing, this is God saying, I'm going to give her exactly what she needs. Naomi and Ruth need an heir. Their life needs resurrection. It's going to come through Boaz. And so now we come today to chapter 4, and there's this business at the gate. The nearer kinsman comes Boaz gives the rundown of what's happening. He says, Naomi's here. Boaz explains her husband has passed. Now, Lamech, you remember him? You're the closest guy. Will you buy the land and redeem it? You've got to imagine this guy. He's thinking, well, a widow, I'll take care of an elderly widow. Okay, take care of the land. And then when she passes, okay, yeah, sure. I'll redeem it. It's a sweet deal. Into verse 4. And he said, I will redeem it. And we say, oh, no, you won't. No, sir, we don't want you to redeem it. You're not the guy. What are you doing? You see, this is our, this is our fairy tale ending. It's, it's turning into a grim story. The ex-boyfriend is going to ruin the wedding. The girl ends up with the loser. 
The princess is in another castle. This can't end like this. Well, the text gives us a hint that it's not going to. Boaz is going to address this guy. If you notice, he dresses him as friend. Hey, friend. But notice that we're never actually told his name. In fact, in the Hebrew, the the way that it's phrased is Mr. So-and-so. Mr. So-and-so, come on over. And that's because Boaz is going to flip the table on this guy. This isn't just a land deal. Ruth comes with it. This sort of changes everything for Mr. So-and-so. Maybe he's already married. It'd be sort of awkward to bring home Ruth. Honey, surprise, surprise wife. Or maybe he wanted one of his current sons to inherit that potential land. But the son of a random Moabite getting that land, and I don't get that. And No thanks. Verse 6, then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. He's thinking about himself. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And all of God's people said, Amen. Love story back on. So now there's this interesting part here about sandals. And we go, what? No, you know, sandals. We're talking about, you know, love here. Let's get married. This comes from Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. It's again God's law being gracious to his people. It's grace built into God's law to reflect who God is. It describes a ceremony conducted when a kinsman, he would decline his responsibility. And the one declining would remove his sandal and the woman he declined could spit in his face and dishonor him. But in this case, there's really no lack of honor because Boaz is there to take it. So they just did the part with the sandal. But what I want you to see is that by Boaz's simple obedience to God's law, the way he handles the fields and the gleaning laws, the way he handles his workers, his self-control, even this final step is why his name is in this book. Forever immortalizing God's story because he obeyed. And yet the disobedient kinsman, forever Mr. So-and-so. How does our portion of the text end today? How does verse 12 end? Well, it ends on the heels of a wedding. The people pronounce blessings over the happy couple. And our grim beginning officially is going to turn into a happily ever after. But even here, even here, we're still left with potential problems. You'll remember that Ruth was married for 10 years prior to this. Why was she unable to have children? We don't know. The text doesn't say anything. Just 10 years of marriage, nothing And so the question is, is God going to open her womb? Is he going to bring about the seed? Is he going to bless her and Boaz? Spoiler alert for Ron's sermon next week. Of course he does. (laughs) Of course there's going to be a baby. And as we're going to see next week, as we close out the book, this child, Obed, is going to be a redeemer of sorts as well. Because from Obed comes Jesse, and from Jesse comes King David. And from David will come the greater king, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the perfect redeemer of God's chosen people, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who sits on the throne of David forever and ever. Okay, so what do we, we're here in 2022. What do we take away from this story? This is a story about redemption. It's a story about restoration. It's a story about resurrection. What are practical applications for us? First of all, think about redemption. The definition of that word is twofold. The action of saving or being saved from sin, error, or evil. 
Secondly, the action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for a payment or a clearing of a debt. Well, how did God redeem Ruth and Naomi? He calls them out from under the Moabite gods, from a foreign land, and he says, come back to me. Come under my wings. I'm going to give you refuge. What about us? 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He purchases Ruth and Naomi for himself through the kinsman redeemer Boaz. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty life, way of life you inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. What marvelous redemption we have. What about restoration? Again, the definition is helpful. The restoration is the action of returning something to a former owner, a place, or a condition. Naomi needs restoration. As we're going to see in next week's sermon, she is going to be completely restored by God. Completely restored by God. So much so that in verse 17 of chapter 4, it says this. The women of the neighborhood gave him, Obed, a name saying, A son has been born to... Naomi, a son has been born not to Ruth, to Naomi. Naomi, you're no longer bitter. You're blessed. God was with you. God was with you. What about sweet little Ruth? She's given a husband, a home, a child. Her life is given back to her. Why? Boaz said it. Because you came under God's wings. Because you came under his wings for refuge. And now you're going to be blessed beyond your wildest dreams. What about us? What happens when we come to the Lord seeking restoration? As it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. That's grace beyond our wildest dreams. He's saying you can't even fathom what God has prepared for you in your life for after this life. You have no idea. You can't even begin to imagine. And the book of Ruth shows us that in every trial and tribulation we face, God is preparing us. He's preparing you and your children and even your grandchildren for glorious things. He's working all things together for the good of those who love him. And the problem is when we get focused with ourselves and our current circumstances, when we wallow in self-pity and we say, I just, I curse the day I was born. I wish my name was bitter. We can lose sight of what God could possibly be doing through our trials, through our illnesses, through our pain. What is he going to do through this to bless the next generation? You see, again, Boaz became famous because he simply obeyed. Boaz just did what he was told to do. He just just obeyed God's law. And that's why he's famous. That's why he was included in God's glorious story. He wasn't thinking about what just profited him. You know, well, my inheritance could be ruined or this could be... No, no, no. He was thinking about what profited others. He was thinking about the future. And of course, through Ruth, all of our futures have been 
blessed through Jesus Christ. This means that we too should consider in all of life's big decisions, how will my current decisions affect my children 50 years from now? What will God use in my life, this trial, this tragedy, this joy, this wonder? What will he use in my life to bless future generations? How can being simply obedient, simply being faithful, bless your children? Now, I don't want to be morose, but we should think about our death often. And remember this. We're but a vapor. This life is a vapor. It goes by too quickly. We should take heart knowing that this present darkness has an expiration date. 1 Peter 5.10 And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. A real quick note here, a side note. I want to talk about the covenant community because at the end here, we see the elders are called forth. The women who met with Naomi at the beginning when she called herself bitter. Now they've seen her restored at the end and they're all here in the covenant community. And what I want you to see is that redemption and restoration, it takes place often within the church, within God's people. The elders, the women, they, they pronounce blessings upon Ruth and Boaz Ruth and Naomi, where do they come to in the first place? Where do they go seeking God's favor? In the, God's people's fields. They're looking for God's favor among the people of God. And so you ask in this day and age, why is the church so important? Why do I need the church? Why do I have to go to church? Why, I don't care. You know, why, why do I need to do that? Because this is where God's bride is. This is where Jesus is. If you want to find Me, look where my bride is. Look where my kids are. Look where my family is. I'm going to be with my people. And so we need to come to the Lord's fields if we want to find him there. Think even of when we baptize sweet little infants in our church and we have the baby there and we all of us commit to raising that child with the parent. We say we will love that child. We will do nursery. We will help you out. We'll babysit. We're going to raise that. We're going to love that child. We're going to pour into that child. This is the blessing of the covenant community. And that bless, that sweet little baby blesses us. Because that's the next generation. This is how the Lord sustains his people from everlasting to everlasting. And so what I want you to see, just like Ruth, just like Naomi, is that our individual stories of grace of triumph, these are made grander and more majestic when you place them here with all of us. Your individual story of redemption is a single piece of stained glass. And when you place it next to my story and next to his story and your story and her story, then we make a stained glass window and the Lord's light will shine through it to the whole ends of the world. And they'll say, what a glorious bride. Christ has purchased for himself beauty and light. I'm going to close out today. What about resurrection? We've got to talk about resurrection, don't we? Redemption, restoration, resurrection. I'm going to close out with a fairy tale. So gather around and listen. It's a story called Lily. Way up in the north, where the north forest ends and the ice begins, all the way to the North Pole, there lived three sisters. And the oldest sister was called Bean Plant. And she thought she was fairly important. No, no, no. Very important. Because she produced food. She produced food that no other people, 
that other people could eat and satisfy themselves and they could get nutrition from. She said, I am important. The second sister was named Marigold. And Marigold said, I am a knockout. The world needs beauty. I fulfill the world's needs. Art is beauty and beauty is art. But their third sister was Lily. And Lily had almost nothing to recommend her. Her blossoms, no, there was no blossoms. She was just a thick stem, vestigial leaves, and a silliness that she had. She drove her sisters crazy. For you see, Lily would often talk to the sun. Oh, Lily, oh, Lily, sun doesn't talk. Sun is a ball of heat, bean plant said. Sun helps me make green beans. Sun serves me. And the sun, the sun, the sun, said Marigold. Sun shines on me and lets everybody see my great beauty. Sun doesn't talk. And Lily said, maybe not, maybe so. And here's how Lily would talk to the sun. The sun would rise and would sit on the eastern horizon and its effulgence would say, good. And Lily would say, morning. And that's how they talked together. Good. Morning. And the sun would become as high as it gets in the sky. And at noonday, the sun would say, good. And Lily would say, day. And then the sun would sit on the western horizon. And just before it went to bed, it would say, good. And Lily would say, bye. But, not bye, night. In order to see him the next morning. And so it went day after day for Lily. Well, the sisters finally put on a party and everybody came. The squirrels were there. The birds came. The little mice were there. Trees came. Stones rolled up. Everybody was there. Everyone was having fun until Lily came to the sisters and she said, there's something wrong with the sun. And everybody in the party looked at her and the sisters said, don't mind her. She's so silly. She knows nothing about good work and prettiness. No, Lily said. The sun is getting lower and lower. He gets up later in the morning. He can hardly make it up in the sky. He goes to bed nearly every morning early, every evening. He's not there. I think he's dying. Oh, Lily, (laughs) sun doesn't die. And even if it did, said Bean Plant, look at me. I got all these beans now. Dried out, but enough for people to eat. I'm a worker, Lily. You don't need the sun when you got me. And then there was Marigold. Same sort of thing. Well, even if the sun isn't here to glorify my beauty, I'll be the sun for everybody, she said. But Lily was angry. The sun was lower and lower, and the last time that it sat now on the southern horizon, it said to Lily only one single word. It said one word that Lily would hold onto with all the hope she had. And now all the birds began to fly south. And the mice went into their little holes in the ground for the winter. And the leaves tore off the trees. And they were all saying, the killer is coming. The killer is coming. They said to the sisters, get out of here. The killer kills by kissing. And the whole place cleared out. The trees, no leaves. They just stood there, dark silhouettes against the horizon. The killer kills by kissing. Beanplant said, it's not fair. (laughs) It's not fair. I've worked all my life. I've done exactly what I could. I did what was required of me. It's, it's not. And Lily stopped her. Wait, bean plant, wait. I have a message from the sun. It's not fair, interrupted bean plant. It's not. But the killer came and killed her by kissing her. And there was bean plant all alone in the field, shivering and dry and dead. The killer kills by kissing, but it doesn't only go through the air. Marigold said, it's not fair. I am so beautiful. Certain things like me ought to live forever. It's not fair. But here came the killer. 
And Lily said, wait, wait, I have a word from the sun. It's not fair, Marigold cried, shoving her head into the ground. But even through the ground came the killer, and the killer kissed her, and she was dead. And then the killer came for Lily, and she said, I hate you. You took my sisters. I hate you. With all my heart, she screamed, I hate you. And then she allowed it to do what it came to do. And Lily herself went into the ground, but she didn't come out. Come around Easter time, I'll take you to that place, that northernmost edge of the forest, and I can show you something growing there as the sun comes up and up and up. I will say, look at that white blossom. What do you, what do you see inside of it? And you'll say, ah, oh, a drop of water. And I'll say, what do you think that water is? And you might say, well, I don't know, a, a dewdrop? I'd say, no, that drop of water is a teardrop. Because this is how the sun raises things, by kissing. And the sun kissed Lily under the ground, and Lily grew, and there she was with that beautiful blossom. And the word, you see, the word that the sun gave to Lily, the word of hope that allowed her to hate that killer and rise again, was again, 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 again. You see, life is filled with these grim winter kisses. There's death, there's evil, there's sin, there's illness, tears, unspeakable hurts. But the message of hope that Christ gave us was again, again, again. And the sun will shine upon each and every one of you, and we will rise Glorious in the resurrection. The son of righteousness shall come with healing in his wings. And how that blessed son will raise us is with a kiss. A kiss of life from the king of glory. Friends, if, if you have not looked to that one whose hands were pierced in your place, who suffered our shame, he drank the cup of God's wrath dry it was his face that was spat upon. We were the lawbreakers. We were the Mr. So-and-so. And his face was spat upon. And now this wondrous king says, I'm coming again. And when he does come again, that killer will be no more. I pray that you would be seized by his great affection that he has for you today. That your grim story would eternally, forever, be a happily ever after, again, again, again. Let's pray.